Throughout the Advent season, our church has been walking through the four Advent candles around our Advent wreath. And we've been talking about how the four candles signify four parts of the perfect Christmas party that God planned to bring Jesus into the world. So we talked about the time and the location and the guest list and the decorations this past Sunday and have filled out the Advent wreath as we've gone through the Advent season. Uh, But there's another way that Christians have historically looked at the Advent wreath. And that's with four words, four words that you probably hear pretty regularly about this time of year, hope, peace, joy, and love. Hope, joy, hope, peace, joy, and love. And each of the four candles represents one of those words. And so as we walk back through the four Advent candles tonight, we're going to walk through those four words and remember what God has to say to us about those four words, hope, joy, peace, and light. The first candle is the prophecy candle or the hope candle. At this time, children, if you have your Advent wreaths that you made at home with you, you can take one of the flames and pin it on or glue or tape it on one of the purple candles on your Advent wreath. So this candle is the prophecy candle or the hope candle. It's the candle of hope because as the Christian church thought about the coming of the Messiah in the Old Testament, they had hope that he would come to be the savior of the world. And for New Testament Christians like us, we remember the hope candle because we hope for what is to come when Jesus will come again to take us to be with him in the new heavens and the new earth forever. But when you hear the word hope as a North American, you probably don't hear what the Bible intends to say by the word hope. Uh, We as North Americans tend to use the word hope to talk about maybe a, a preference or maybe positive feelings that we have towards something. For example, like I hope the Blue Jays make the playoffs, or I hope we'll have a white Christmas. But the biblical word hope is a lot more robust than that. When the Bible talks about hope, it talks about it as a for sure future, a certain future, a promise of something that will absolutely come to pass. Hope is God's guarantee. Now, if you're a modern person, guarantees aren't always what they cracked up to be. I think back uh, a little while ago, I bought an iPhone and uh, we got the insurance policy on that iPhone so that if it ever got damaged, you know, I could get it replaced. Um, But sure enough, it got damaged. And then when we called the insurance company, they said we actually had to pay an extra $300 on top of the premiums we've been paying for the insurance on the phone in order to get the phone fixed. Guarantees aren't all they're cracked up to be in the modern world. But God's guarantee is different. See, God promised that the Messiah would come. And depending on how you number prophecies, the Old Testament contains anywhere from 700 to 2,000 prophecies about the Messiah. And every single one of them came true in the person of Jesus. And that should lead you to think a couple things. First of all, it should lead you to think that Jesus is God. (laughs) I mean, only God can predict that far in the future that accurately. Second, it should lead you to believe that this is real history. Like Jesus fulfilling almost 2,000 prophecies, like that would have been a big deal for the Jewish community. And they would have been able to catch him if he had not fulfilled those prophecies. But they didn't. But third, it should give you hope. 
It should give you the certainty of a for sure future because that God who made all those promises made good on those promises. As the book of Galatians tells us, when the set time had fully come, God sent his son. In other words, when God plans something, he makes good on it. And there are a number of promises that God has made to you. He's promised you that he will never leave you or forsake you, that he will provide for you, that he will love you. He will forgive your sins. He will bring you to be with him someday. All these things are promises he has made in Jesus, and they are just as certain as those promises about the first coming of the Messiah. So put your hope in those things. Hope is a for sure future. And when you have a for sure future, it changes the way you look at your everyday. If you buy a house and you close on that house, you know that in the next couple weeks or months, you're going to have to move. And so you live a certain way because you have a for sure future. If you're getting married, you're engaged, you're looking forward to the wedding. You live a certain way because you're looking forward to a for sure future. Your for sure future is life with God forever in heaven. How will that make you live today? This candle reminds us that Christianity is a religion of certainty. It is a promise that the almighty God has made to us after showing his perfect track record of keeping every promise he's made in the past. And that, my friends, is true hope. The second candle is the Bethlehem candle. Because if you're following along at this time, take another one of the flames and put it on another one of the purple candles on your Advent wreath. The Bethlehem candle is also the candle of peace. Whether it's black and white, right or left, liberal, conservative, anti-mask, mask wearers, or it's something far more personal, you and your spouse, or you and your kids, or you and your coworker, you and your boss. There's a lot of conflict in the world. And this despite the fact that every one of us wants peace. Right? Like who's ready to raise their hand and say, you know what? I want more war. <laughs> Nobody wants that. They want peace. And yet it seems like none of us have peace. So I have a big question for us to answer tonight. Why? Like, why don't we have peace? And I would guess the answer that most people would give is exactly the same. Them. They're the reason we don't have peace. They're like that. They said that. They didn't apologize. They won't change. They won't make a difference. It's all about them and, and what they do to us. But the Bible gives a different answer. The Bible's answer is the reason that you don't have peace is you. Because you want stuff. You want to be acknowledged and you want to be loved and you want to be listened to and you want to be successful. You want to be noticed. You want to be chosen. And the fact is that doesn't happen consistently in life. And so there's conflict. When people don't live up to your expectations, there isn't peace. Honestly, if we didn't want those things, we probably wouldn't have that much trouble having peace. But deep down, every one of us knows that we want that kind of peace. But the Bible's answer is to not to stop wanting things, but to realize why we want those things. 
And the reason we want those things is because ultimately we want God. We want to be ultimately acknowledged, ultimately provided for, ultimately chosen, ultimately loved, ultimately listened to, and only God offers that to us. But the crazy thing is, we don't go to him for it. We would rather try to put our hope for those things in all sorts of people who can't live up to our expectations, and so we necessarily get in conflicts with them. And so the Bible's final point to you would be the reason you don't have peace at all in your life is because you don't have peace with God. It's kind of like you ever have this happen where you have a bad day at work, there's a fight with somebody or an argument, whatever, and, and then you come home and it spills into your home life. Like you take it out on your wife or your husband or your kids or your dog, or maybe vice versa, things at home aren't very good. And so it messes with your friendships or your workplace in a cosmic way. That's kind of what's happening with us in God. Because we are, as the book of Colossians says, alienated from God and enemies in our minds of him because of our evil behavior. We won't go to him for the things that only he can provide. Christianity talks about this as the sinful nature, uh, the deep-seated desire to do what is wrong, to rebel against God that's built into every one of us when we're born. The fact is we're not getting over it. We're going to continue to look for peace in all sorts of places other than God, unless God makes peace with us. The very next verse of that same chapter of Colossians says that now he, God, has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight. In other words, God didn't wait for us to make it right, to apologize, to fix our ways. He came to us. He gave his son to be a reconciling sacrifice by his death so that we could have peace with God and finally look to God to provide us all those things. You want peace? Look to Jesus. Because no matter what happens, he will be right with you by his death on the cross. And that will start to seep out of your life into your relationships that you have more peace every day. The third candle is the shepherd candle. You may notice that this candle on your wreath, kids, is a pink candle. If you want to put the light on that candle right now, you should do that. And remember that the pink reminds us of the joy that the shepherds felt as the angels came to them and announced the birth of baby Jesus. Just like peace, joy is a word that we have a definition for in North America that probably isn't congruent with God's definition of joy. Uh, We think of joy as like exuberance or a really high level of happiness, but the biblical word for joy is probably better expressed in the word comfort. Like what is the thing that comforts you? What is the thing that you can say about it? Yeah, this is bad, but at least I have that. What is the thing that if you lost it, your life would kind of go into a free fall? What is the first thing you think about when things start to go bad in your life? Where do you run when you need comfort? During this season, I think a lot of us have tried a whole bunch of different things to comfort us. And we found out that most of those things can't support the weight of our need for joy. Some of them have bent, some of them have broken. 
we've seen that the things around us can't provide lasting joy. In a way, human beings literally suck the life or joy out of life. Like we look for each thing that can give us a little bit of joy and we try so hard to squeeze out every little bit of joy from that thing rather than think about it as something that can give us joy for a moment. But if we put that much weight on it, we'll run it dry. Have you done that in this season? Have you expected something to give you joy and had it fail you? On the first Christmas night, the angels told the shepherds that they had good news that will cause great joy for all people. And they said that that joy was a savior who was born to them, the Messiah, the Lord. Your joy is in Jesus. Your comfort is in Jesus. No matter how bad life gets, no matter what you lose, no matter what goes wrong, you have Jesus. And that is a comfort that is rock solid and unending, and finally, independent of any other cause. Did your spouse leave you? Jesus will never leave you. Is your behavior the reason your spouse left you? You've given Jesus more than enough reasons to leave you, and he hasn't left yet. Lose your job? Jesus has an eternal purpose for you. Fear that you won't be a good parent? Jesus calls his father the father of all. Worried that you can't make payments? Jesus has already fully paid for you. Worried that you'll never find that special someone? Jesus will always be fully in love with you. Worried that you'll never become someone significant? God was willing to die for you. And that kind of rock-solid joy can bring comfort to any situation. Every one of us wants to be happy. But no matter what you believe or what religion you follow, you know happiness isn't always there. But what's better than happiness is comfort. Because comfort can be that spring that you draw on in the dark times of life to find joy when no one else would. The fourth candle is the angel candle. Kids, now it's time to add the fourth flame to the last of the purple candles on your Advent wreath. The angel candle is the candle of love. And love is the Swiss army knife of English words. Like, I am so thankful that English is my first language and I don't have to learn about how English speakers use the word love because love has about 10 different meanings to us, doesn't it? Love can mean commitment, like husband and wife. Love can mean sexual attraction, like hashtag love wins. Love can mean preference, like I love pizza. Love can mean I like hanging out with you. Love can mean I want to sacrifice for you. Love can mean I just want to consume the things that you've been giving to me. Love can mean all sorts of different things. And so if we're going to talk about love as Christians, we better have a biblical definition for this word. And the way the Bible talks about love is unconditional. Like expecting nothing back. Completely giving no matter what the other person does. Like true biblical love serves and sacrifices when the other person won't apologize. 
true biblical love serves and sacrifices when your kids don't appreciate what you're doing for them. True Christian love serves and sacrifices when other people are getting acknowledged for work that you put in. True Christian love serves and sacrifices when other people are getting credit, even though you've been here longer. Unconditional love serves and sacrifices no matter what kind of treatment it gets back. And I think we would all love to believe that that's the kind of love that we show. That's the way we wish we loved our spouses, our kids, our friends. But more often than not, I think our love is just love of self that uses other people or other things in order to love ourselves. Like we'll marry somebody who makes us happy and we'll have just the right amount of kids to make us happy. And then we'll spend our money on what makes us happy. And if we don't have enough money, then we'll get a job that makes us happy by either being a job that actually makes us happy or makes us enough money to make us happy. We're basically trying to make ourselves happy all the time and using everything around us to do that. And though we might use the word love, what we're really doing, well, is using people. The human beings are not capable of unconditional love. We live in a shallow world where we're trying to convince ourselves that we are loving, but we are anything but. And if you don't believe me, believe the science. In the second half of the 20th century, a study was done of the shift in narcissism in North Americans. So the way that they judge this sort of thing is on a scale, like a spectrum. Um, And you are either, you know, anywhere between one and 10 on the narcissism scale. And narcissism is a condition where you essentially see other people, not so much as persons, but as objects to be manipulated. Like there's parts of the brain that, that identify someone as a sentient being with its own will and parts of the brain that identify things that well, aren't alive. There are things like chairs or whatever that don't have a will. And, and it seems that narcissists, their brain is shifting and starting to see people more with this part of the brain that sees inanimate objects. And the study revealed that over the second half of the 20th century, the average North American had their narcissism rating nearly double. I can't remember the exact number, but if I'm, if I'm remembering correctly, the average North American was a four, and back then it, then it went up to a seven. And who knows what it is today? And if you look at your life, isn't that how you operate? You love people insofar as they're being nice to you. You're willing to sacrifice for people insofar as they're willing to sacrifice for you. But that's not love. That's at best a contract, but it's not love. So the love that God shows us must be wholly and completely different. And that's exactly what it is. Because God the Father was willing to send his son into the world, regardless of whether we would accept him, regardless of whether we would believe in him. And he still did it. Knowing that some would reject, knowing that some would curse his name, knowing that some would mock and ridicule and kill other people for believing in that name, God still sent Jesus to all of them. That kind of love you're not going to find anywhere else. And I would suspect that if if you're not a Christian tonight, maybe that's one of the reasons you've rejected Christianity. You think that's too good to be true, but let me challenge you. It's the only way it can be. We all crave love. Real, unconditional love. We don't get it anywhere on this earth. Doesn't that lead you to believe that there is a capacity out there to love us unconditionally? Well, you found it in Jesus Christ. He was willing to love in a way that none of us can. So that all of us 
could be saved. The last candle is the Christ child candle. What story are you listening to? One of my fondest memories of growing up in Ottawa was going to minor league baseball games with my dad. In fact, moving to Toronto, it's been one of the disappointments. As much as I love the Jays, there's something about minor league baseball that you just love during the summer. But one night that we were watching a minor league baseball game stands out to me. It was a late spring evening, and while our minor league baseball team was playing, the Ottawa Senators were either trying to get into the playoffs or were in the first round of the playoffs. And so there were people at this minor league baseball game who were listening to the game on handheld radios while they watched the game. Now, I know what you're thinking. Yes, before we had phones, people actually carried around handheld radios. But that was such a profound experience for me. Because our minor league baseball team that day was doing so terribly, like we were getting crushed. But occasionally you would hear these cheers that came up from the crowd as the Senators scored and people heard it on the radio. My question for you tonight is, what story are you listening to? Are you like those fans sitting in the stands without a radio, forced to watch the debacle in front of you? looking at the world around you and seeing evil and darkness and sadness and frustration, and that's all you can see? Or are you listening to a different, more important, better story? If you're joining us tonight and Cross of Life is not your church home, I'm so thankful for that, especially if you are somebody who got invited by one of our members. I love that. And what I want to share with you tonight is that Cross of Life intends to be those people in the stands with their radios. Like we see the world and we see the darkness and we know that it is just as real as that minor league baseball game was. And it matters just as much as that minor league baseball game does, but we're hearing a different story. And so see tonight as that cheer that comes up from the crowd that you can't see, but you can hear as Christians across the world, once again, remember the good news that Jesus is born. They remember the meta narrative, the umbrella story that has given people peace and hope and joy and love for thousands of years through so so much worse than what we're going through right now. And if you are a Christian tonight, especially if you call yourself a member of Cross of Life, then rejoice. Because once again, we get to hear that good news for us. I want to focus on only one verse today. It's Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? This is God's word. 2020 was a year of disappointment, wasn't it? Like Maybe this was the year you were planning that big vacation, but now you're dealing with booking and rebooking and schedule conflicts and refunds and credits and trying to figure out where your money even went. Maybe this was the year that you were going to have that big family gathering, but now you're relegated to FaceTime with grandma and grandpa. Maybe this was the year you were going to get married, but you had to put it off for another year. Maybe this was the year that you hoped to find that special someone, but let's be honest, dating in 2020 is kind of weird. 
Maybe this was the year that was going to be awesome at your school, but now you're stuck staring at Zoom for hours at a time. 2020 has been a disappointing year for many of us. And I got some bad news. I don't think it's going to get better soon. Like even tonight, people are going to open presents and they're going to be disappointed. Now, not all the presents are going to be disappointments, but some things that were on the list won't be bought or some things that were on the list won't be bought correctly. Or maybe you'll get something that you don't really need and and frankly, you don't really want either. Or maybe just the fact that there have been less hours and less income means less gifts under the tree this year. A feeling that disappointment is going to continue. And I got some even worse news. It's going to continue past the last seven days of this year. Like we love to believe that January 1st is somehow going to be this magical thing that everything's going to be fixed or at least a little bit better. But the same problems that were on December 31st will be with us on January 1st, 2021. It's a disappointing year. We had all these expectations and they weren't met. And I wonder if it leads many of us to say, so that's it. Like, that's it. That's 2020. That was that year. This is my life. And to be so utterly disappointed. I wonder if some people are like that with God sometimes. If they hear about God as this all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, and apparently loving God. But then they look at their life and they say, this is it? Like that all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving God is out there. And, and though I apply and apply and apply, I can't get the job? Though we try and try and try again, we can't get pregnant. Though I'm faithful in coming to church and giving my offerings, I can't seem to get rid of this pain, whether it's emotional or physical. God, I feel like I've got potential in this life, but I also feel like my life is going nowhere. God, is this it? If that's how you feel tonight, I want you to know you're not alone. I can only imagine what those shepherds thought when they first saw the baby Jesus. You got to remember, these guys had just seen an angel army show up in front of them, rip the sky apart, light it up, and sing a song that was going to be sung literally for thousands of years after that. You got to think they had a pretty hyped version of what they were going to see in that stable. Like they were thinking maybe he's going to be like glowing or or levitating or something, or maybe he's going to talk with like a really deep booming God voice, even though he's only eight pounds. Who knows what they were expecting, but I can't imagine that when they saw Jesus, they were all too impressed. They walked into a dirty stable to see a small baby in a feeding trough, crying as a bead of sweat that's still there from labor goes down Mary's forehead and she gingerly tries to get up to pick him up to feed him. I wonder if they thought, this is it? But despite what they saw, And despite what you may see in your life today, that is it. And it's awesome. Because that baby was God's son. I don't have any sons, but I do have two daughters. And I love them both very dearly. And I love being with them. I love playing with them. I love tickling them. I love them even though they cry for no reason and spit up on my shirt. I love my daughters. And I can't wait to to watch them grow up and play sports or play music with them or watch them do art because I'm terrible at art. Maybe some of you have older kids, you remember these things, like you remember going to the cabin or maybe you remember walking your daughter down the aisle. Maybe you remember Christmases before this one where you were together 
If you remember those recitals, getting up early for hockey practice or sitting out in the rain during a soccer match, you remember those things and you did them because you wanted to be with your kids. I would venture a guess that if you're watching this and you have kids, one of two things is true about you. You're either with your kids or you wish you were. But on that first Christmas, God was not with his kid. In fact, God had sent his kid to earth to be the savior, to not just be a baby in the manger, but to be a human being that would grow up with flesh and blood just so that flesh and blood could be ripped apart so it could be killed so that you could live. Around this time of the year at our church body's seminary, oftentimes professors will share stories of unique Christmases that they had from their ministries. But there's one story that many have shared because it was so impactful on them. It was a story of one old professor who talked about the first Christmas he spent with his newborn son. He and his wife, as you would expect, were so excited for all the things that come with the first Christmas with a child. But that Christmas morning, they, when they woke up, they went into his room and looked into his crib to find out that he had died on Christmas of all days. And that old professor, he said this. He said, it was then that I knew how much God loved me, that he was willing to give up his son for me. See, the baby in the manger may not look like much to you, but to God, it's everything. That baby is God's son. And God sent him into the world so that he could die in order to make you right with God so that he could call you sons and daughters. The message of Christmas is that there is a bigger story. Christmas isn't just about cute costumes and twinkly lights and soft music, but about a relationship that was torn apart in order to make your relationship with God whole, to give you a for sure future, a hope that would give you peace in order that you could have rock-solid joy in every situation because of the love that God had shown for you. So when you look at that baby in the manger, understand who that baby is. That baby is God's son. That baby is God's kid. And he gave, you to, he gave him to you as a perfect gift, the greatest gift. Not because you earned him, not because you deserved him, but because that's how God is. It's easy to think not much of that baby in the manger. But nothing less than the Son of God in that manger will be enough to save us from our sins. Our rebellion against God is too great. We need a Savior. And that's just what we got. And so to drive this home for you, I want to tell you a story. This is a true story, actually. From the fourth century. The early Christian church, only a couple hundred years away from Jesus' birth, death, resurrection, and ascension, was coming up against a problem. There were those who called themselves Christians who started this rumor, this false teaching, that Jesus wasn't actually God's son. That he was somehow less than God. Yes, powerful. Yes, gifted, but but not God's son. And so they got together at this place called Nicaea. In 325 AD, they got together and they actually formed what is called the Nicene Creed, which many churches, including ours, still subscribe to. But at that council, something really crazy happened. Arius, 
the guy who was kind of the head of this movement to say uh, that Jesus was not God's son, got up to make his case in front of the council. And as he was going, one of the bishops got so angry that he stood up, walked over to Arius and punched him in the face. That bishop was Nicholas of Myra, who later became famous for giving gifts to poor children and whose legend turned into the character Santa Claus. Saint Nicholas, Santa Claus. In other words, if you don't think that it matters that Jesus is God's son, Santa's going to punch you in the face. And as awesome and as humorous as that story is, it does illustrate a really serious point. We need a savior. Jesus is that savior. And so as you look at the Christ child candle tonight, remember that the light of the world already came once to give you a for sure hope and peace and joy that goes beyond understanding in his love. If you don't trust in that savior tonight, I want you to take that first step down the path to find out how great this savior is. If that's you tonight and you're interested, leave us a chat in one of the chat boxes or send us an email. You can find our contact info on crossoflife.net and we'll be glad to walk with you and show you the next step to encounter this unique savior. God be praised that the baby in the manger would grow up to be a savior on a cross, rose again to guarantee for us heaven with God forever. Amen.